It had been 10 years since they first came through. 10 years since those men sent by God first came and proclaimed a message about the Savior, Jesus Christ. At first, they'd only spoken to a small gathering of women outside the city wall down by the river. But before too long, a church had started. It was a meeting, meeting in a home of a local businesswoman, and it started to grow. People from all walks of life started to join this small, new church. And after a little while, the men who, who first told them about Jesus, they had to leave and to go off to other cities to plant other churches. But over time, they stayed in touch, and they'd come back through, and they'd come back to visit, and they'd write letters to this church and explaining what was happening throughout the rest of the world and what God was doing. And they would write back, and they'll tell them about what was happening in their own midst, what God was doing among them, as well as some of the things that they were wrestling with and having to think through and deal with. And the church kept growing, and God kept moving in their midst. And then they had to wrestle with a question, one which maybe we've experienced ourselves a little bit. Because you see, this little church was the church that St. Paul founded in the city of Philippi. And because of their belief in Jesus, they were experiencing opposition from people in their own city. Their family had started to mock them. Their friends had started to shun them. Their clients were taking their business elsewhere. And the government was cracking down on them, all because of their belief in Jesus. So they asked Paul, how do we continue to follow Jesus when it becomes hard and difficult and costly to follow him? What, what do we do when our surrounding culture and society begins to mount pressure on us because of our faith? And because of our faith in Jesus, it means that we can't live the same way that our neighbors do. That was the question that the Christians in Philippi had for Paul, and which they were asking him 10 years after they came, he came and planted their church. And I think it might be a question which some of us uh, sometimes wrestle with and think about too, especially living as Christians in a city as secular as Vancouver. How do we live our lives for Jesus when it has become difficult and costly to follow him? Whether it's with our friends or with our, our colleagues, our, our families, or just the random people we meet on the street. And even if you're not a, if, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're just exploring faith this morning and, and you're still trying to figure out if, if Jesus is who we claim he is, I think this is still a good question for you to think about and to wrestle with. Will Jesus be worth following even if faith in him makes life harder rather than easier? How do we live our lives for Jesus when it becomes costly and difficult to follow him? In Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives an answer to this question. And so that's what I want for us to explore today. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 4. And... Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the, the Great Church Bibles home with you. That's a gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible to read for yourself. And everything I'm going to be reading today is also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, so Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Have everyone know about your graciousness. The Lord is close at hand. Do not be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and petition... Make each and every one of your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep God over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, how do we follow and live our lives for Jesus when it has become difficult and costly to follow him? Paul tells the Philippians five things. He gives them three things they need to do to continue in their faith and two promises to encourage them along in their costly pursuit of Jesus. 
So we're going to start with those three things, and then we'll come back around and we'll anchor them in those two promises at the end. So we find that the first thing Paul tells them to do is in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice. Now, doesn't that seem kind of strange? I mean, they're being shunned by their friends and their family. They're losing customers. No one wants to do business with them. The government is cracking down on them because of their faith and they don't trust them, so they're throwing them in prison. They're telling Paul about everything that's happening to them and everything that's going wrong. And Paul says, hey, you know what? Rejoice. What? What what do you mean? Isn't that kind of backwards? I mean, if I were in the Philippians' shoes, and and because I'm a Christian, my my family is shunning me, my, my friends are mocking me, uh, my, my business is going under, the government is threatening me. If, if that were happening to me, and I, I was talking with, with Preston, and, and Preston were to look at me and he would then say, hey, you know what? Rejoice. I would seriously question whether he understood what I had just told him. And I imagine that the Philippians probably felt rather the same with Paul. And perhaps it seems like a bit of a shock to you too. I mean, that's not usually what we say to someone when they're suffering. But the thing is, Paul isn't denying the severity of suffering. He isn't making light of it or saying, oh, just change the way you think and you'll get over it. He doesn't do any of that. In fact, nowhere in this passage does he even mention or promise or suggest that the persecution or opposition is going to stop. And in fact, Not only that, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians while he himself was in prison on account of his faith. He's not writing from some comfy armchair about something he's never experienced. He's in the thick of it himself. If there's anyone who can speak with authority on the topic of suffering for the faith, it's Paul. He isn't giving the Philippians a list of things to do to make the persecution stop. If it's difficult and costly to follow Jesus and all you want is for that difficulty and opposition to stop, Well, that's really easy. You can just stop following Jesus. But that's not what the Philippians are asking about. And that's not what Paul is telling them. Earlier in his letter, Paul writes in chapter 3, beginning of verse 8, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. They couldn't abandon Jesus. He was too precious to them. And while they surely would have liked the persecution and the opposition to stop, that wasn't their question. They weren't asking, how do we make it stop? They were asking, how do we live our lives for Jesus when it has become difficult and costly to follow him? And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. This isn't an optional thing. Paul, Paul doesn't say this as though joy is meant to be something optional for us to do if we feel like it. In fact, he's pretty intent on the Philippians being a people marked by joy. Throughout Christian history, Christians have often looked at this letter Paul wrote and said that this is it's a joy letter. It's a letter of joy. He writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats it. Again, I say, rejoice. This is a command. And it's a command to everyone. Rejoice always. But notice, this isn't some blind joy. He doesn't say, be joyful because of your suffering. And he doesn't say, rejoice in whatever it is you can find to make you joyful. 
It's not a fake joy. It's not an empty joy. It's not something made up or contrived. Paul says that there's something very particular we're meant to rejoice in. He says, rejoice in the Lord. There's an object to this rejoicing, a reason for why we should rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul tells them to fix their eyes upon their greater reality, their salvation. Because, you see, Christian joy is ultimately rooted in our salvation. And there are, there are plenty of other things in life which can give us joy, wonderful, good things. The joy of new birth, the joy of friendship, the joy of getting a raise, the joy of our favorite team winning the game. But when it becomes difficult and costly to follow Jesus, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. You see, Christian joy flows forth from our salvation. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Joy is ultimately the joy of salvation for us as Christians. And the first step to following Jesus when it's costly is to remember our salvation and to rejoice in the Lord always. And we can rejoice always. Because our salvation isn't dependent on our life circumstances. There is nothing on earth that can change the fact that God loves you. There is nothing on earth that can change the fact that Jesus died on the cross to make atonement for your sins. There is nothing on earth that can change the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered the powers of sin and death for you. And nothing can take that away from you. No circumstances, no situation can ever steal your salvation from you. We rejoice in the midst of our circumstances by looking beyond our present circumstance to something greater. So how do we live our lives for Jesus when it's Comes costly and difficult. Well, the first thing Paul says is we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. The second thing Paul tells us to do is this, beginning in verse 5. Have everyone know about your graciousness. Now, this is a bit of a strange thing to say, and it's sort of a complicated thing for us to do. Uh, and different Bible translations will, will sort of render this a little bit differently. They'll, they'll say things like, well, rejoice, uh, not rejoice, uh, your reasonableness, like your reasonableness be known to each other, uh, your gentleness, your graciousness. And, and the gist of, of that, it, what he means here is this. Let your Christian character, let your, your gentleness, your, your graciousness be known to everyone around you. And now, if we're honest, that's not how most people think about Christians. Usually, when, when people think about Christians today, they, they say that Christians are, are hypocritical, they're, they're judgmental, they're arrogant, holier than thou. And quite frankly, often they're right. A lot of Christians have and do behave that way. Even when things have gone well for Christians, too often we really struggle to follow this particular command. Even leaders in the church. But the fault of Christians to live their lives as followers of Jesus is not a good enough reason to give up on trying to follow Jesus yourself. And it doesn't excuse us from giving up and following him with this command either. We are to live in such a way that when people look at us and how we live, they see Jesus. And we're to do that to everyone. Not just to the people in the church that we like, and not just with the other people we know who are Christians in our workplace. Have everyone know about your graciousness. Everyone, including the people who are making it difficult for you to be a Christian. 
your peers at work who are snide and relentlessly mock you because of your faith, your friends and family who tease you and make your faith the butt of all their jokes at the dinner table, your bosses and teachers who talk down to you because you're a Christian, have everyone know about your graciousness. And that's not to say we should let ourselves be abused. That's not what this is about. But we don't fight back. We don't get our own back. We, we don't take revenge. We're called to turn the other cheek and to see them as, as Jesus sees them and to love them as Jesus loves them. And one of the clearest pictures I've come across of, of Christians doing this, it's a church in Charleston, South Carolina called Emmanuel AME Church. Um, for those of you who, who don't know about this church, they're an African-American church that's over 200 years old. Uh, they're actually the oldest historically black church south of Washington, D.C. And they're located in downtown Charleston. And on Wednesday, June 17, 2015, a white man came to join the Bible study at church. And he stayed through the whole thing. And at the end, when everyone was beginning to pray and they had their heads bowed, uh, this man stood up and he took out a gun and he started to shoot. And he killed nine people and three of them were pastors. It was a targeted hate crime which drew outrage and international attention. And they caught the guy, and a couple of days later at his first court appearance, uh, Nadine Kaya, the daughter of one of the people that the man had killed, she stood up and said to this man, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to my mother again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. How do we live our lives for Jesus when it becomes difficult and costly to follow him? Paul said that the first thing is to rejoice in the Lord, and the second thing is to have everyone know about your graciousness. And the third thing Paul tells us to do, we find in verse 6, do not be anxious. Now, that's much easier said than done, especially in the face of difficulty and opposition. The Philippians' friends and family are leaving them and mocking them because of their faith. Because they're Christians, people are taking their business elsewhere. Because of their trust in Jesus, the government is making their life hard for them. And Paul says, don't be anxious. Now, when you hear the word anxiety spoken in the church or in the Bible, uh, some of you might get your defenses up because you yourself have an anxiety disorder. And the last thing you need is trite advice like, don't worry. And you are absolutely right. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul's using the same term that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's the idea of being preoccupied with something, and deeply distressed and concerned. And the sense of what Paul is getting at here in Philippians, it's this. He's saying, don't trust in yourself to figure it all out. Don't get so caught up in your own situation and so preoccupied and distressed and concerned about what's happening to you that you make the mistake of thinking that you need to be the one to figure it all out. 
Stop trusting and depending in yourself. If you're experiencing persecution and opposition because of your faith, if it's difficult and costly to follow Jesus, don't get caught up in how you are going to deal with it. Instead, trust and appeal to the very object of your faith, to the one in whom you have placed your faith. Appeal to Jesus. That's what Paul means here. Do not be anxious, Paul says, but in everything. That is, everything that is happening. The family who mock you, the friends that ridicule and forsake you, the colleagues who taunt and slander you, the customers who leave you, the institutions and agencies that make life hard and that oppose you because of your faith. In everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make each and every one of your requests known to God. The Philippians are not to quietly suffer and fear in the midst of their circumstances. They aren't meant to fret in a corner and carry the weight of their hardship upon their own shoulders. Paul tells them to bring it all before Jesus. If it's difficult and costly to follow Jesus, then talk to Jesus about that. Continuing in verse 6, Paul says, By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make each and every one of your requests known to God. And there's a lot I'd like to say about the topic of prayer today, but I just simply don't have the time. Uh, But I think it's profoundly important, though, that we pay attention to what Paul does tell them to do. He doesn't tell them to go out and make a campaign to raise awareness about their suffering. And he doesn't tell them to, to seize political power and to change the laws of the land. He doesn't tell them to respond the way that the world tells us to respond. No, he, he tells them to pray. And when I look at the way that a lot of Christians, especially in the Western world, live their lives and respond to things, I don't think we take this very seriously. The the pastor Samuel Chadwick once famously said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. I'm I'm not so sure how many Christians believe in the power of prayer today. But I think that's something which we desperately need to recover. Because the truth of the matter is that when we pray, God does hear us. And he doesn't always answer our prayers the way that we want him to. But he still hears us. And there is power when we call on Jesus' name. So how do we live our lives for Jesus when it becomes difficult and costly to follow him? Paul says the first thing to do is to rejoice in the Lord. And the second thing is to have everyone know about your graciousness. And thirdly, make your requests known to God. Paul gives them three things to do, but that's not all that he tells them. He doesn't just come up with these three things randomly and just kind of say, oh, well, try these three things out and see how it goes. Let me know. Good luck. He doesn't do that. No, he gives them a reason and a basis for them. He grounds these three practices in the very character of God. Paul doesn't say that the persecution is going to stop because of these three things he's told them to do. In fact, Paul never suggests that the opposition and persecution is going to stop. He doesn't say that to them. Paul isn't giving them instructions for how to halt the difficulty of following Christ. Rather, he's instructing them on how to shine like lights in the dark world. He's instructing them on how to keep on reveling and delighting in Jesus in the midst of it all. And to do that, he tells them two promises about God. Two promises to encourage them along in the costly pursuit of following Jesus. So we have our three things. Now let's anchor them in those two promises that Paul told them. 
And the first promise is this in verse 5. The Lord is close at hand. The Lord is close at hand. In the face of opposition, when it's difficult and costly to follow Jesus, when people are making our lives difficult because we're Christians, the Lord is close at hand. Paul is saying that there's a physical and relational proximity. Jesus is close to you. He's nearby you. When it gets difficult and lonely to, and costly to follow Jesus, it, it can often feel pretty lonely. Um, and it can feel like God is, is distant and far away. And, and it can feel that way at other times in our life, too. Sometimes we can just fall into this spiritual funk or, or go through spiritually dry seasons in life. And it's okay if you're in that place today. You're actually in really good company. The Psalms are full of people asking God, God, where are you? Psalm 10.1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13.1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? God sometimes can feel distant and far away. And sometimes our relationship with Jesus can feel dry. And that's actually a pretty common experience for people to go through in life. But, and hear this, that doesn't prove that Jesus is far away. And I think a good way to illustrate this is, is to imagine a parent with their child. And I recognize some of you don't need to imagine that, um, but I'm single and I'm not a parent, so I, I do need to imagine this. Imagine a parent and their child are in a room together and the child is running around, they're crawling around, they're playing a game, and the parent is sitting at a computer, filing their taxes, or doing some other boring adult thing. And they look over, and they see their child, and they're consumed with love for their daughter or for their son. And they turn and they say to them, I love you. Now, slightly different scenario. Same, imagine the same parent and the same child in the same room, but this time, the parent is able to play with the child. And the parent looks at their child, and they take their child in their arms, and they look at their son or their daughter and they say, I love you. In both contexts, in both instances, the parent is still with their child and consumed with genuine love for their child. And I imagine the child probably feels more of that love and experiences more of that love when they get picked up. But the parent loves their child all the same. And similarly, God is not far away or distant. No matter how much it may feel like you're alone when life gets hard, God has not forgotten about you, and he has not left you, and he never will. In John 14, 18, Jesus says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's close at hand, and his Holy Spirit is in you. He dwells in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and because the Lord is close at hand, you can rejoice. And because the Lord is close at hand, you can be gracious. And because the Lord is close at hand, you can pray. The first promise is that the Lord is close at hand. And then Paul makes a second promise. And the first promise is incredible. But I find the second promise mind-boggling. We read in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep God of your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul never says that the persecution or opposition is going to stop. But he says that God will give us his peace. 
Paul says that this is a peace which surpasses all understanding. It isn't some, some quest to find inner peace. And I think I need to, to push into this a little bit because I don't think many of us have an imagination for Christian peace. Often I hear people talking about practices, whether they're spiritual or not, uh, which, which emphasize some awareness of inner peace and self-transcendence through, through meditation or f- through communing, communing with nature. Uh, and, and those things can help us relax. Those things might be restorative for us in some ways. But inner peace is not the all-surpassing peace of God which guards over a person's heart and drives out anxiety. The peace of God actively guards over us, whereas most pursuits of finding inner peace is where we are meant to find it somewhere inside of ourselves. But God's active and all-surpassing peace is a gift from without, not from within. Our quests to find inner peace find their source in ourselves, and we focus on ourselves instead of the source of true peace. But the gift of God's all-surpassing peace results in joyful praise and delight in the God above. Christian peace, this all-surpassing peace which God gives to us, it's not somehow latent inside of us and covered up underneath all this stuff that's cluttering us up inside. The peace of God is a filling and an active peace, not a peace we strive for. We do not find the peace of Jesus Christ by looking deep within ourselves. We will not find the peace of Jesus Christ by emptying ourselves to find a sense of inner tranquility and calm. The true Christian peace is not emptiness. It's fullness and wholeness. The Hebrew word for it is shalom. It's it's wholeness. It's a gift that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't come from within. It comes from without. And Paul says, the peace of God will keep God of your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that he says, it will keep God over you. There's this actively protective dimension to this peace that Paul is describing. And the way he talks about it would have been especially resonant for the Christians in Philippi when they first read this letter. Because you see, there was a really prominent Roman garrison stationed in the city of Philippi. And they were there to maintain the peace of Rome throughout the region. They, They were a physical army whose express purpose was to enforce the peace and reign of those over the land. And Paul knew that. And he very intentionally uses language here to to call that image to mind of of a garrison. It's it's the image of this peacekeeping army. But he twists it around completely. It's not an army that's to keep God over the city and maintain peace. No. Paul says that the peace of God will keep God over us. God garrisons us with his peace. God keeps God over us with his peace. God maintains his peace and reign in the hearts and minds of his people by keeping God over them with an even greater and even truer peace than anything else which we can begin to imagine on this earth. It's a peace which is actively keeping watch over you, keeping watch over your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. God will give you his all-surpassing peace to keep God over you. And because of God's peace, you can rejoice. Because of God's peace, you can be gracious. And because of God's peace, you can pray. The second promise is that the peace of God will keep God over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how do we live our lives for Jesus when it has become difficult and costly to follow him? Well, we rejoice in the Lord always. We rejoice in the Lord always, no matter what our circumstance. Even when everything's going great and life's wonderful. 
We rejoice even when it feels like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. No matter what's happening, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice and have your graciousness be made known to everyone. Allow the love and grace of Jesus to overflow, to spill up out into the lives of everyone we know, to everyone, and present your requests to God with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present each and every one of your requests to Jesus. And by doing that, we're never promised that the persecution or the difficulties will stop. But we're told two things. We're given two promises to hold on to, to encourage us along in this costly pursuit of following Jesus. The Lord is close to us. He's with us in the midst of it all. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And may we know and rest in such a wonderful and glorious peace as this.